if you will, look with me at Isaiah 52. I'm going to read Isaiah 52 through Isaiah 53, 12. Isaiah 52, 13, sorry. You're like, 52 what? 52, 13. This is the fourth servant song of Isaiah. It starts in Isaiah 52 and verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied." By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we consider this, your word, that your spirit would illumine our minds, that we would understand this fourth servant song in Isaiah, this 
servant song that points us so clearly to Christ. The Christ who took our penalty, substituting himself in our place, atoning for our sins so that we are cleansed of all unrighteousness and credited with his righteousness. We pray as we behold your servant and his wise work, as we consider how he acts wisely, that you would cause us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder, children, if any of you have heard any Greek mythology. Maybe if you're a little older, I think in sixth grade, a lot of times people will start that. Um, but some people started even younger. If you have, maybe you've heard the story or the Greek myth about Narcissus. Ovid tells the story of this handsome young man named Narcissus who is loved by a nymph named Echo. But he does not love her in return. And Echo actually goes on in the, in the Greek myth to die in the forest, pining away for Narcissus. Why doesn't Narcissus love her? The answer we get in the, in the Greek myth is that he's unable to. And the reason he's unable to love her is he cannot love another because he saw himself in a still spring of water. And when he saw himself staring into the pool of water, he fell deeply in love with himself. He couldn't get past his own image. And he desperately grasps after the object of his love but can never grasp it. It turns out that he was so deeply in love with his own image, so self-absorbed, that he was actually destroyed by his own self-love. He stared into the pool of water until he starved to death. Sadly, we're a, we're a deeply self-absorbed people who seem in this day and age to trumpet self-love above all virtues. Our educational system, our governmental educational system anyway, and children's entertainment catechize children in love of the self. And when you think often of yourself, your world becomes small and sad. And like Echo, those who love you, like her, that nymph, those who love you, are ultimately destroyed along with you. Excuse me, those whom you love are ultimately destroyed along with you. We literally have a kind of media now. You know, media is this kind of medium of exchange. A kind of media now, we call it social media, that promotes the notion that the, what the world need needs now is love, but not sweet love, self-love. It seems to be the only thing that there's just too little of. So take another picture of yourself because, you know, hey, that'll make the world a happier place. What everybody needs to know more than anything else is what you're doing right now, and they need to see a picture of you doing it right now. There's nothing folks need more than another picture of you. Don't you know that? So post one. Perhaps that's why anxiety and depression have gone up so dramatically since the advent of social media. 
In fact, we meet with missions organizations and we experience at Radius this um, constant statement to us, hey, listen, um, what do you guys need most? What are you struggling with the most? What we're struggling with the most is the most anxious and depressed young people we've ever seen in our lives. We can't even get them to stop thinking about themselves for a minute. And self-love is catechized by pretty much every form of media, and the most extreme form is carrying around this device constantly reflecting on yourself, taking pictures of yourself, asking everybody to look at you, looking to see how many people like the pictures of you, how they comment upon it. It's a catechism in self-love. And friends, self-love causes you not only to be anxious and depressed, but causes you to be the destroyer of others when they compete for the world's attention that you crave. Children, you know the story of Snow White? You guys, you guys know the story of Snow White, right? Most of you do. Some of your parents keep you from Disney for very good reasons nowadays. But historically, we used to watch Snow White. What does the evil queen do daily? She goes to the magic mirror and she says what? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And the mirror keeps telling her, you, until Snow White comes along. And when Snow White comes along and she finds out that Snow White is the fairest of them all, she plots to destroy her. She wants to bring an end to Snow White. That's the state that self-love leaves us in. We're unable to see past ourselves. We're unable to love others. And we are ever dissatisfied grasping at an illusion that reflects back to us from a pond until we die. We naturally know that our worlds um, become depressingly small when we think only of self. Now, how do we naturally know that? Well, think of, of see seeing the beauty of the ocean or the grandeur of some mountain range. In that moment when you see that, you sense a kind of joy and peace, and you do because something greater, something that transcends you, has caught your attention, and for a moment, you've forgotten about you. And it's when you've forgotten about you that you suddenly sense joy and peace like you don't generally sense it. Well, we're often caught in self-love, and there's no transcendent image to eclipse our vision of ourselves. I bring all this up because I want to argue that until we turn our gaze upward to Christ, as Paul will tell us to do in Colossians 3, until we turn our gaze upward to Christ, we will fail to know the kind of transcendence that bears the fruit of peace and joy. You'll, you'll fail to know it. That's why asceticism, severity of the body, will not cause you to grow in holiness. It'll cause you to grow in selfishness. It's only when you turn your eyes to Christ that you begin to grow in holiness. There's a Christian hymn from the 1920s that has a chorus we sing. Um, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Now listen. And the things of this world, or earth, will grow strangely dim in the light 
of his glory and grace. So this morning, we're going to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. We want to reflect on his glory, his person, and most expressly on his grace, his work. So look with me at Isaiah 52, 13. Isaiah 52, I'll start reading in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Note that it starts with, behold, my servant shall act wisely. The first servant song, there's four servant songs in Isaiah. The first one is in Isaiah 42. It actually just starts out by saying, behold, my servant. Behold my servant, and you're largely being focused in the first servant song to behold the servant, the glory of his person, and what he'll bring about. And then, in this fourth servant song, behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now you're being called upon to behold his work, his action, the wise thing he does. We are to look, to pay attention to behold Yahweh's servant. Here is where our eyes are to be turned. We're to look upon Jesus. We're to behold the servant and his work. Most expressly, we're to behold the servant's wise action. Look, my servant shall act wisely. So we wanna ask, what is the servant's wise action? What is his wise work? When we behold the servant, what is the wise work he has done that we are to look to, to pay attention to, to behold, to gaze at? You notice your eyes come off of all that's around you, especially you, and you look at him and what he's done. Not this earth and what's happening around you, him and what he's done. So what is the wise work that we're supposed to pay attention to? I want to answer that under three headings. First, Christ's exaltation, verse 13. Second, Christ's humiliation, verse 14 and 15a, there in Isaiah 52. And third, Christ's proclamation. It's actually in the middle of the second point where we see what his work is that we're beholding. But we want to look at the other two as well. So let's look first at Christ's exaltation. The exaltation of the servant of Yahweh. Now, I'm not going to take you to the New Testament to prove this is about Jesus. I think you all probably have heard enough. This is about Jesus. I'll give you one example. Philip, the evangelist, meets with the Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading this servant song in Isaiah, and he realizes this is about Jesus. Acts chapter 8. You can look at it later. I'm not going to prove that now. Here's the point. It's about Jesus. So that's, that he is the servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Note first that he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That is not a work he does. Rather, it's a kind of reward he receives. What shall the servant receive upon the completion of his wise work? He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. You, you hear this kind of language echoing, for example, in the hymn in Philippians 2, don't you? 
right? When you're to consider Christ, to be like him, what does he do? Who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, remember this? He humbles himself to the point, as a servant, to the point of death, even death on the cross, and as a result of that, God exalts him. That's the reward for the completion, the fulfillment of his messianic work. We've heard this language, though, of high and lifted up and exalted in Isaiah before. So keep your hand here and look over at Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. And look at verse 1. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now note the words, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. See, Isaiah in this vision, is brought into the presence of the Holy One. Into the presence of the one who is high and lifted up, and he is lost. That language can also be translated undone. Literally unraveling, um, coming apart at the seams, disintegrated. Why is he unraveling? Why? Why does he call a covenantal curse upon himself? Woe is me. Because he's a sinner. Because he's a sinner. Now I want to slow down for a minute. What does beholding, looking upon, the one who is high and lifted up, do for Isaiah? What does it do for him? It causes him to call covenantal curses upon himself. That's what it does. Woe is me, for I'm undone. His lips are unclean. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's he saying of himself? My heart is unclean. And he cannot see the Lord and live, and he knows it. He cannot see the thrice holy God of all and live, and he knows it. Look at Isaiah 33. Isaiah 33. And look at verse 10. Now I will arise says the Lord. Who's speaking? All caps, Yahweh. I will arise. Now I will lift myself up. So he's high and lifted up. Now I will be 
exalted. Who is the one who was high and lifted up and exalted? The Lord. Now when you see the one who is high and lifted up and exalted, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Yahweh, the one whose name is I Am. When you see him, what is the outcome? Well, you see your own sin and you recognize you're undone and you will be judged mercilessly. Look down at verse 33. Who can draw near to this God and dwell with him? Verse, sorry, verse 13. Isaiah 33, verse 13. Hear you who are far off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. Paul will pick up this language in Ephesians 2, by the way. Those far off are the nations, the Gentiles, those near, the Jews. Hear, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppression, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of the rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. So who can meet the Lord and dwell near him? The man who's holy. Well, friends, I'm sorry to conclude. You are not that man. You're not that man. In and of yourself, you are not that man. Only Christ, the servant of the Lord, meets this description. He is the king of beauty whom our eyes will see. And if we do not know him, if we do not know him, we will see the one whom we have pierced and we will wail on account of him. Please do not miss this regarding the resurrected, ascended, and exalted Christ because that's what Isaiah 52, 13 is picking up, that Christ will rise from the dead ascend and be seated as king. Many will see him as the one who was high and lifted up and exalted and they will be terrified by the wrath that he exercises. He will come with the sharp sword in his mouth to strike down the nations and his robe will be dipped in blood from treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That is talked about in Isaiah 63 and Revelation 19. Do you know what it looks like when people press the grapes in a wine press? They put all the grapes in a vat and they stomp on them and the juice from the grapes stains all their clothes? Isaiah 63 and then making application to the return of Christ says that Christ's robe will be dipped in blood as he treads the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. Who can stand in the face of that? Who can see him who is high and lifted up and exalted and live?
if you're in your sins, if you have not turned to Christ in faith, then you are his enemies. And unlike our culture, he will not tolerate your sins. He is holy, holy, holy. He will not look the other way. He will cut you down and trample upon you like a man pressing grapes to make wine. He will cast you into the everlasting fire of hell where the smoke always rises and the worm never dies, where there is eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, believers, Jesus is your gentle and kind friend. Believers, he is your gentle and kind friend. He saved you. He has called you friends. But his friendship is not akin to, you know, this kind of Jesus is my homeboy business. His friendship is not one in which you stand beside him as his buddy or his equal, like you do with your other friends. Christ is your friend in that he is not your enemy, not in the sense that he is your equal. Remember the apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved? He rested his head on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. You guys remember that scene and. That same apostle John, when he saw Jesus in his resurrected, exalted glory, fell on his face, trembling in fear. Your friendship with Christ is that of being a friend to the king. So we do not trifle with him. We revere him. His enemies he cuts down with the sword of his wrath. His friends he saves and blesses. If we are saved and we are his friends, then it's gloriously good news that he's come. But if we are not saved and we are not his friends, then what I'm telling you is not good news for you. Look at Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. For thus says the one, now notice the language, the one who is high and lifted up. The one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I will dwell in the high and holy place. Now notice this shocking statement. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Listen. You should not be surprised that God is holy, 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 and that as the King of kings and Lord of lords, he dwells in a high and holy place. The part that shocks you, it shouldn't be surprising that he inhabits eternity. The part that shocks you is that he dwells with you. If you're contrite and lowly, that he would dwell with you, a sinner. How is that possible? That the one who is high and lifted up, the one who is holy, would dwell with you, a sinner. Why are you not being cut down as as his enemies? Well, I'll tell you the answer. Between what you saw about the Lord being high and lifted up in Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 33 
And now this change that you see in Isaiah 57 where he's dwelling also with sinners like you, or contrite, the change is answered by the four servant songs. That's what explains the change. In fact, expressly the fourth servant song explains the change. Jesus is the Lord, the King who is high and lifted up and exalted. He is the one who inhabits eternity and his name is holy. And yet he also dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Saints, we are shown again and again that this is because of Christ's atoning work on the cross that we read about in Isaiah 53. Christ's humiliation to the point of death, even death on a cross for our sins, is the ground of his exaltation as our king. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers and the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, through whom he also created the world, whom he appointed the heir of all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So let us behold Christ's humiliation because if it's his humiliation that, if you will, takes the terrifying sting out of his exaltation, then we should behold this humiliation. Look at verse 14, Isaiah 53, Christ's humiliation, and verse 14. As many were astonished at you. Now why are they astonished? His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Look what's happened to him. He has been so battered, so abused, so beaten that he has an appearance that is beyond the children of mankind. He doesn't even look human anymore because of the beating he's taken. Now this is the one who is high and lifted up and exalted. This is only, by the way, without getting into a whole Christology here, explicable in the God-man. The one who is Yahweh, who takes humanity to himself, is the only one who can be a human who is so beaten down that he's not even, he's not even visible, if you will, to you as a human. And it's through this torture that he goes through, to the point of crucifixion on the cross, that we read what we read next. He's marred beyond human semblance, that's not technically his work, it's what happened to him, but look at verse 15a. So shall he sprinkle many nations. So he shall he sprinkle many nations. In other words, being high and lifted up is the, if you will, reward that he gets and exalted. That's his resurrection, ascension, exaltation. Being crucified beaten, marred beyond human semblance is how he is sacrificed. That's where he, if you're talking about him as the victim, the one who is crucified. But when we look at his work here, so shall he sprinkle 
many nations. We're now getting into the language of his wise work. This is all a package, but you're getting specifically here to him as the great high priest who offers himself as the victim and then who applies that to the nations. This language of sprinkling the nations is Levitical language for guilt offerings. It's used in Leviticus 16 regarding guilt offerings on the Day of Atonement. And here, um, if you will, Christ is sprinkling the nations with his own blood, just like the priest would sprinkle the blood of the atoning sacrifice upon the altar. He's atoning for them. He's atoning for their sin. Incidentally, this is why Ezekiel 36 will talk about the fact that the, when you're given the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant and he sprinkles clean water on you so that your heart is cleansed, this is just picking up the same idea that Christ's blood has been sprinkled upon you so that you're cleansed of your sin. He's atoned for you. Now Isaiah 53 makes abundantly clear what's being said here. Christ offers himself as a penal substitutionary sacrifice. Penal meaning he paid the penalty due to you. Substitutionary, it's due to you and he paid it. Sacrifice, he offers himself. Look, look um, at a few facts briefly here about it. Look at Isaiah 53.10. He was, and, and notice this, he was appointed to this work by the Father and he did it voluntarily. Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him to grief. When his soul, that's the servant, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Do you hear the, the language there? The father appointed the son to this task, and the son does it voluntarily. He makes an offering of himself for guilt. And then... What happens? His days are prolonged. In other words, this is another way to talk about the exaltation that follows the humiliation. He substituted himself for us. In our place, condemned he stood. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. Notice, those are our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Like, God has cursed him. But... He was pierced for our transgressions. That's our violation of God's law. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the servant, the iniquity of us all. Now, like sheep who went astray, turning our own way, he was like a sheep that went exactly where the father sent him. Verse 7, suffering is the sacrifice in our place. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Do you, you notice the difference between Jesus and us? We're like sheep that go our own way. He's the sheep that goes exactly where the Father wants him to, regardless of the cost to himself. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken 
for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. See, his blood was shed like the sacrificial animal. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. That's the payment of our debt. He paid our penalty. Pay attention to verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Look at verse 8 again. By oppression and judgment he's taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? His soul made an offering for guilt. Whose? Ours. Look at verse 11 and 12. Out of the anguishes of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. Again, from humiliation to exaltation. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. You hear that? He bears our sin. He gives us his righteousness. Therefore I'll divide with him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. Here again you see humiliation that leads to exaltation. Exaltation to the extent that we are co-heirs with Christ of all things. So that he divides the spoil with us. He made a penal offering for guilt, for transgression, for iniquity, and for sin. He made the priestly offering himself. Please note that. It's going to really come up in my sermon next week. Jesus was not just one who suffered. He didn't just passively suffer as a victim, though he did passively suffer as a victim. He didn't just merely do that. He was an offerer of himself as the sacrifice. The priest is appointed on behalf of man to bring the offering that expiated, that's cleanses and brought forgiveness of sins, and propitiated, that satisfies the wrath of God. Christ is the offerer and the offering. Saints, I hope you hear this. Here is the good news. Christ died for you. You deserved none of this. You deserved his righteous wrath, and yet the Father in love sent him for you. The Son purchased grace for you at the cross. He gave himself for you. And by the Spirit, he gives himself to you. And all your sin is laid upon him. And all his righteousness is laid upon you. This is the wise work of the servant that we're to behold. Now the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Christ the power and the wisdom of God. See the wise act of the servant. In fact, Jesus Christ has become to us the wisdom of, from God, 
righteousness and justification, sanctification, redemption. This is why Christ and Christ alone is our boast. And it is because that's true that we proclaim Christ and him crucified, which is our final point, and I'm just going to touch on this briefly because next week I'll look at it in more depth. But look at Isaiah 52, 15. Again, Isaiah 52, 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Now notice the next phrase. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. And notice, the kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. Why are kings shutting their mouths because of him? So we know in Isaiah, on more than one occasion in Isaiah, unbelieving kings lie prostrate before him. Their mouths are stopped. These wicked kings, it says, will eat the dust, and their mouths will be silenced as he reigns victoriously over them and brings them under judgment. But what is this silence? Because this silence is not that silence. This is the silence of faith. This is the silence of faith. The apostle Paul quotes this text in Romans 15, 21 as the basis for his call to go to unreached peoples. Listen to Paul. And thus I make it my ambition, it's his honor, another way of saying that, to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I should build on someone else's foundation. For as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. Thus the Spirit is making clear that the silence here of these kings is the silence of faith. They have seen and heard and understood. Friends, the wisdom of God makes foolish the wisdom of this world. The kings and nations see people worshiping a man. You stop and think about that. We worship a Jew who died on a cross. You ever given that some thought? How ridiculous that looks to the world? There's a Jewish man, probably 5'6", five, 5'7", five, at best, given the time period he lived in, in Jerusalem, who was crucified on a cross, given the death penalty as a criminal, and millions and millions of people across the world worship him. That seems utterly foolish to the world. Utterly foolish. We call him the God of the universe who created all things. We say that that man, as he died upon the cross, was at the same time upholding the universe by the word of his power. As a zygote in his mother's womb, upholding the universe by the word of his power. That appears foolish to the world. So they mock. They mock. But upon his resurrection, ascension, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, their eyes are opened by the Spirit to see the foolishness of their own wisdom. They see the power of God in Christ's humiliation at the cross, and their mouths are shut with wonder and awe. When you see the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus for you and for your sins, your mouth is stopped in stunned silence and awe. 
You're humbled and contrite and you tremble at his word. You're filled with faith and the fear of the Lord. You're overwhelmed by gratitude and you want to leap for joy like a calf from the stall. How would the Lord who created all this deign to do that for me? Do you know him? Do you know him? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If not, you may wonder, how do I receive this Savior and benefit from his work? Look at Isaiah 55, because Isaiah 54 and following are going to basically explode in response to this fourth servant song. Isaiah 55 gives you a direct application of this fourth servant song. Look at verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. You hear that? If you have no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my, my steadfast, sure love for David. If you want Christ and all his benefits, he's yours for free. Did you hear what you bring to the table? Nothing. And until you understand that, you can't have him. If you keep trying to come and offer him something, you're going to get nothing in return. It isn't until you realize that he paid it all and you have nothing to bring him that you can have him for free. You only need, as Luther says, to receive him like a beggar with an empty hand. And this leads to how I want to apply it just briefly today. If you know Jesus Christ who offered himself for you, and you've received him free, without price. What's your response? How does Paul run out Romans 1 through 11 after he, 11 chapters of glorious good news? Christ has offered himself for you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, hear that language, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He offered himself for you. Now in view of God's mercy, in view of such marvelous, mouth-stopping grace, filled with gratitude, you offer yourselves to him. And one of the greatest offerings we can make is to proclaim him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And I'm going to turn to that next week. But for today, let me end by returning to where I began the Christian life is rightly lived when you behold the servant and his wise work. Behold Christ and him crucified. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. Father, we ask that you would cause us 
to look upon your Son and his work for us, that we would not be distracted by the things of this world, that we'd not be caught up with ourselves, our selfish desires, the things the world offers us, but that we would regularly, regularly cast our eyes upon Christ and his work. That we'd meditate day and night upon his glory and his grace. We ask that you would do that in us. We know we are weak, that we so often, like dogs returning to our vomit, go back to our selfishness and sin, go back to our worldliness, cast our eyes here on the things of the earth. We ask your Spirit's help that we might look more and more at Christ and his work. In Jesus' name, amen.